from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. So, just plugging along. Yeah, so. I think we all are. So, I'm <laughs> I'm still riding the high off of going over a thousand episodes, thousand one, and just uh, on the Disney World edition. That is, we we talked mm-hmm. about it before. We're we're very far off from a thousand episodes on this, but you should have figured that out when when you started off by saying we're on episode sixty six. So. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, did you? We're we're going to be talking a little about Mickey Mouse today, yeah. and the uh, about I don't know a week or so ago, uh, they released the official 90th anniversary portrait of Mickey Mouse. I think it's entitled "I'm um, Spreading Cheer Throughout the World." So, did you take a look at that official it, portrait of the mouse? Yeah, I absolutely did. So, uh, mm-hmm. of course, uh, it released at San Diego Comic Con. So Disney had a really big presence there this year. A lot of, lot of panels that I was seeing pop up between having, having that information about Mickey coming out, and then they had the, uh, uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas panel that people were going insane about. So it's good to see that they, they were very popular this year at Comic Con. But I'm, one day I'll get out there for it. Of course, that's the year there'll be nothing Disney that happens. No Marvel, nothing again. <laughs> but no, I, I did see see the portrait, and I actually, I, I think it is really beautifully done. So it's the. I mean, I I love the concept of it with the spreading of the pixie dust or mm-hmm. whatever substance he's throwing on the earth. So it's I I don't know if I care for him grabbing onto the balloons like that. So. I, I I like my Mickey in a nice like stoic portrait and not mm-hmm. not holding balloons up outside of the atmosphere where in reality he would not be with us any longer. But um, it's it still is the artwork on it is actually very beautiful. So he's maybe he's in the Disney bubble as he floats around up there. I like that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, I it bothers me. It Mickey just seems off model to me his face yeah and and you know even john hench's official portraits i think he did about five of them if you look at those you know you know mickey's a little off model on those but i don't know mickey seems really off model to me yeah it's i think that's one of the the underlying issues right now with with how disney's been moving with art in general and don't get me wrong i I love that more artists are able to to put their stamp on Disney merchandise, Disney portraits, uh, all of that. It's the more creative artwork we have at our fingertips, I think, is ultimately uh, the better. But 
with that comes many different styles. And I think this is this is a showcase of what happens when when there's kind of been that that lost sight of the one defining Mickey that Mickey look that you have. And, you know, right now, the official Mickey look from the company is the the new uh, the new animated look of mickey oh, that we're seeing on youtube and get me started on that i i don't hate it as much as you but i think that's because i genuinely enjoy the cartoons that i not as bothered by the character design in it but um it's i i feel like it, at some point mickey needs to there needs to be that one defining look that it's like this is this is what Mickey yeah. is, and while you can you can put your twist on it in, cert, in sorts when it comes to something like a an anniversary portrait or or official artwork, I, I think it should be a more classic design. So mm-hmm. not I agree the the YouTube style he has now that we're going to see in Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway that should not be the only the only design for him right now. I agree. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it was interesting because one of the things that I learned in the, you know, the the Walt's Nine Old Men exhibit at Walt Disney Family Museum is that not all of the Nine Old Men could draw Mickey. And they were not all given Mickey. Wow, to I did not draw. know that. Yeah, because they felt they were not on model with him. So oh, nice. I think I think that's why this portrait bothers me even more. So um, anyway, but I know a lot of people really enjoy it, and I'm glad they still do these official portraits and with their different themes and, yeah. and all that because they're fun. Oh no, it, it still is. I think it, I think the majority of people out there will think it's a beautiful painting, and then I think there's uh, then there's the people like us who. <laughs> I mean, this is our livelihood in a sense. We 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 live and die by Disney, so we we take everything like this and blow it to proportions that the average person just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Do. So, oh yeah, um, absolutely. I'm proud to live in this crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are continuing our retrospective of Walt Disney's animation history. In episode 29, we spoke with Disney historian and author Dave Bossert about how Walt Disney lost Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. This ended up being fortuitous, as we explained in episode 32, A Mouse is Born, that the loss of Oswald inspired Walt to create Mickey Mouse. And in that episode, we stated that there are four phases to the career of Mickey Mouse. Uh, Phase one is from Mickey's screen appearance in 1928, Steamboat Willie, until his 1940 appearance in Fantasia. And during these 12 years, Mickey Mouse became one of the most popular stars in the United States. Phase two begins on the eve of World War II and lasts for two decades. During this phase, Mickey's screen stardom begins to fade. He experiences a revival with the debut of the Mickey Mouse Club television show and the opening of Disneyland in 1955. Phase three covers the turbulent 1960s and into the presidency of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And Mickey was embraced by the pop art culture and became a time-tested classic. Phase four of Mickey's career is from the mid-1980s through present day. 
And throughout the fractious political and social climate, Mickey Mouse you know, has now become a global icon driven by nostalgia and brilliant marketing, as we were just talking about earlier with his you know, official portrait being released. So in this episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are going to begin exploring phase one of Mickey's career, from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia. Well, before we jump into that, are you going to say which one of the phases is your personal favorite? Hmm. Let's, let me think here. I mean, I can, I I think I can answer with mine, and that's the one that we're just about to talk to here. Yeah. Uh, With phase one, it's... I am a classic Mickey purist. Uh, I love his style and design that he transformed from those early first couple cartoons into the the classic look. Like I'm sure somewhere in the closet back at my my parents' house, I still have my my soaps from Walt Disney World that they used to give out back in the '90s that had that classic Mickey look right on it. That just you know, every now and then merch pops up where they bring it back. But I, I love the shorts that he was in. I, I love the style and the design from black and white to color. It's just there there was so much good happening with Mickey in this phase. And I, I like I like how his look kind of changed in the in the 50s, too. And I like a lot of his hijinks he got into with Donald and Goofy later on. But uh, it's that the phase one is it's pretty much the best i think i agree i think phase one is also my favorite i like his style i like how ub iwerks started him and then freddie moore read sort of redesigned him and uh and then uh, yeah of course sorcerer mickey is my very favorite role of Mickey Mouse. I also like this era just because Mickey was in his heyday. Mickey was a phenomenon. Uh, he, he took the United States and the world by storm in this. And um, I like the fact that he was so appreciated. And I like the personality that he had at this time. Yeah. You know, being mischievous and optimistic and never giving up. And and some and mirrored so much of Walt's personality. Yeah, he, you know, at this time, I'd argue that he had his most personality back at this point in time <clears throat> before he became that kind of straightforward. Oh, this yeah. is yeah, this is my kingdom. Oh, like before he became a corporate symbol. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you for finding yeah. the words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, so Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse mirrors Walt's own story of going from rags to riches. Um, when Mickey Mouse burst into theaters at the end of the jazz age, he was immediately embraced by the American public, eager to see an underdog like Mickey with optimism and perseverance come out on top. Mickey resonated with audiences because, like we were talking about, his personality reflected the American values of optimism, self-reliance, and courage. Mickey connected with audiences because they saw themselves in him, and so did Walt. And as animator Frank Thomas said, um, Mickey was Walt, and Walt was Mickey. Walt provided Mickey's voice and personality, according to Frank Thomas, only Walt could do it. He was the master storyteller and played up Mickey's daring do. 
The first time Mickey was captured on film was in the cartoon short Plain Crazy, and production began in March or April of 1928, with Ub Iwerks creating more than 700 drawings per day for the seven-minute one-reeler. Now, the storyline for Plain Crazy was reportedly developed by Walt and Lillian Disney during a cross-country train trip and capitalized on the popularity of aviator Charles Lindbergh, and and on the excitement boys had for planes and for Charles Lindbergh after his 1927 solo flight from New York to Paris. This was one of many times Mickey would mimic a well-known personality in his cartoons. And Mickey's ingenuity is displayed in the first cartoon as he constructs a plane with his characteristic cheerfulness and utter disregard for the laws of physics. Yeah, now, as and, you mm-hmm. well, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Continue. I was just going to say, and as all of our audience should have known before, uh, it's now you do have that piece of trivia. If you didn't already know that Steamboat Willie is not the first cartoon, it is That's playing right. crazy. So next time you're at you're at trivia and that question pops up, we, we expect you to answer it if you didn't know it before. That's right. And then share the prize with us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as you know from listening to our previous installment of the series, many of Walt's animators had been hired away by Charles Mintz when he took full control of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Now, since those animators were still working on the final three Oswald cartoons before their departure in June, Walt isolated Ub from the other animators so they would not know about the new character Walt and Ub were developing. So, What Ub did was he kept sketches of Oswald on his desk. In case someone walked by unexpectedly, he could cover his Mickey Mouse artwork with sketches of Oswald. Now, Ub produced over 8,000 drawings for Plain Crazy in about three weeks. And then on three benches in Walt's garage, Walt and Roy's wives, Lillian and Edna, and Walt's sister-in-law, Hazel Sewell, inked and painted Ub's artwork onto cells. Now, cameraman Mike Marcus shot the cell artwork at night back at the Disney studio after the animators went home for the day. And Walt cleaned up all traces of the work so the animators would not see it when they returned for work the next day. So, Plain Crazy was informally previewed on May 15, 1928, at a movie theater on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And Walt coached the theater pianist on how to accompany the action, and, as was his custom, gave the organist a dollar to punch up the music during the gags. Now, a dollar was a lot of money in those days. <laughs> Now, since this was the first public screening of a Mickey Mouse cartoon, one could argue that Mickey's birthday is actually May 15th. So there's another trivia question for you. Yeah, that's, um, that, that one's a tougher one. So that must be yeah. tough, tri- tough trivia if you're getting that. Yeah. Now, on May 21st, Walt and Roy registered Mickey Mouse at the United States Patent Office. Uh, Audiences were so delighted with playing crazy that Walt started production on a second Mickey Mouse cartoon, even though he did not have a distributor. Reportedly, an MGM executive who saw the film said a three-foot-tall mouse would frighten women in the audience. (laughs) 
So on May 29, 1928, Walt threw a party at his house for Ub Iwerks, Les Clark, Wilfred Jackson, Roy Disney, and others to come up with gags for Mickey's cartoon, Galloping Gaucho. This would be Mickey's first swashbuckling role, in which he rescued Minnie. It was a parody of the recently released 1927 Douglas Fairbanks adventure, The Gaucho. Now, Galloping Gaucho and... Um, it was um, both now both Plain Crazy and Galloping Gaucho were silent films, and they were not released until the success of Steamboat Willie enabled Walt to add soundtracks to these films. Now, since the defecting animators had left by this time, Walt was able to openly work on Galloping Gaucho. So newcomer Wilfred Jackson was confused by the whole situation. During his first week at the studio, everything seemed normal. The animators laughed and chatted over their work, but on Saturday they took all their personal belongings and left. And Jackson thought, they're a strange bunch. They have fun together all week, but they don't trust each other enough to leave their personal belongings at the studio. He learned the truth on Monday when only Ub Iwerks, Les Clark, Johnny Cannon, three Incan painters, and the janitor showed up for work. Galloping Gaucho was completed in just three months, in August 1928. Now, so Walt now had two one-reel cartoons in his sample kit. However, by this time, several talkies had been released, and theater owners were wiring their theaters for sound, and they were no longer interested in silent films. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a very strange time. If, if Playing Crazy and Galloping Gaucho were really launched right in this time period is is actual like you know we need to do full releases on it we need to push it it's it's very interesting mickey might not have survived into uh-huh. that period that's what i was reading that's what some critics said that yeah. that mickey might not have made it through yeah i, I personally don't think he would have so it's as soon as sound hit it's it's it wasn't the end of silent films at all but it it changed completely yeah. so it it wasn't like the progression later on when you get to the change between black and white and color you know black and white obviously was still very prominent it was much cheaper to do uh, for the longest point in time but but with sound it completely enhanced the entire the entire experience of going to a theater so um glad that as we'll get to it here walt was uh, very smart with his decisions oh yeah yeah now before Gal- galloping gaucho had been completed walt had been thinking about sound um animator wilfred jackson recalled that walt had said in a staff meeting in late may 20 uh, in late uh, may um that of 1928, that it might be possible to make cartoons with sound. By late June, Walt had written to Powers Cinephone Corporation in New York to inquire about recording costs and stated he would travel to New York in the fall to discuss terms. Um, Walt had made the decision to move forward with the new technology of synchronized sound. Now, Walt could have taken the easiest first steps, which would have been to add voices, sound effects, and music to Plain Crazy and Galloping Gaucho, but since they were already done. But Walt wanted to create a cartoon specifically for sound. 
So a great personal expense, and with a lot of experimenting, um, Walt Roy and animators of Iwerks, Wilfred Jackson, Johnny Cannon, and Les Clark, created a crude method for synchronizing sound and music with cartoon action. So around June 1928, Walt and his animators began work on Mickey's third cartoon, Steamboat Willie, in which Minnie, with Minnie at his side, and well, I should say in which Mickey, with Minnie at his side, wreaks tuneful havoc with the cargo of barnyard animals on board a riverboat captained by Pegleg Pete. Now, Steamboat Willie was influenced by, is it you brought up Buster Keaton, Craig? He was influenced by two Buster Keaton films, 1927's Steamboat Bill and 1924's The Navigator. And this cartoon combines fast-paced comedy with familiar tunes like Turkey in the Straw and Steamboat, Steamboat Will, um, clever sound effects, and the cheerful, mischievous personality of Mickey. Wilfred Jackson had suggested Turkey in the Straw because it was one of his favorite songs to play on the harmonica. And Walt suggested the Steamboat Bill song and the Mississippi Riverboat setting. And it was from these ideas that Walt hosted a gag meeting at his house where his team of animators suggested possible antics that could come from this premise, which told the story of how First mate Mickey saves the unnamed Minnie Mouse from the nefarious Captain Pig Leg Pete. So after the opening scene had been animated, Walt put it on a loop of film so it would constantly repeat. He then set up a test screening for Walt, Roy, and Ub's wives, and then Wilfred Jackson's girlfriend, who would ultimately become Wilfred Jackson's wife, at the Hyperion studio. And then Roy set up the projector outside a window so the project noise, uh, the projector noise um, would not be heard. So Ub set up a microphone and an old crystal radio into a, he set it up so it would work as a speaker system and placed it behind a bed sheet hung across a doorway which served as the projection screen. And then using noisemakers, cowbells, tin cans, frying pans, slide whistles, you know, a washboard, a plunger that Walt had purchased at a nearby five and dime shop, uh, the team produced the sound effects. Um, Wilfred Jackson played his harmonica. Irix played the washboard and slide whistle and produced the sound effects. Les Clark also produced sound effects and the percussion. Johnny Cannon vocalized the uh, barnyard animal sounds. Walt supplied the voices and the additional sound effects. It's insane that they just did all their, their folly like that. I know. I, I know because it sort of sounds like controlled chaos. Oh yeah, know, no, and it's they they really since they were the ones starting it, you know, now nowadays especially with the internet and resources, you can go on and figure like, okay, well, if I'm doing folly work to cre- create this sound, I use this, that. I mean, they did they didn't even have that back then. They just had uh, like, okay, well, let's test test around until we figure out what works. And that's that's how you become a pioneer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm amazed as we go on in this story, it is just amazing how creative. And, you know, when you talk about out of the box thinking, that's all they did. Yeah. At this time. Because none of this had been done before. Oh, exactly. Uh, I mean, there was one cartoon that Walt saw when he finally went back to New York that is technically the first sound cartoon, but it was so badly done. 
and so badly synchronized that it's sort of been lost. No, nobody, nobody um, considered it the first sound cartoon once they saw Steamboat Willie. Yeah, yeah, and that's why everyone knows Steamboat Willie is yeah. the first sound cartoon. <laughs> yeah. When it's well done, it's what stays. Uh, it's what stays with history. Yeah, yeah. But, but when Wilfred Jackson looked back on this evening we just described, um, he said Walt didn't know if people would believe that the character on the screen was making the noise. Nobody had ever seen a drawing make noise, and there was no way to be sure that the people would believe it. It might just look like some kind of fake thing, and Walt wanted it to seem real, as if the noise was coming right from what the character was doing. So to find out whether the whole thing would be believable, when a few scenes had been animated, they set up this test. It was pretty exciting, and it did prove to us that the sound coming from the drawing could be a convincing thing. Now, each of the men took turns going out in front of the screen to watch as the film loop ran and the others provided the sounds. Walt later complained that when it was his turn to go out and watch the loop, the ladies in the audience were paying little attention and were instead gossiping, talking about babies and exchanging recipes. And Lillian said, what did they expect? We had absolutely no idea what was going on. And in any case, it sounded terrible. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, she's. You always count on Lily and to sort of ground everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The men spent several hours running the loop repeatedly as they adjusted the sound, and Walt tried to perfect the synchronization of music and sound effect with the images. Even though the ladies lost interest, Ub Iwerks was enthusiastic. It was wonderful, he said. There was no precedent of any kind. I've never been so thrilled in my life. Nothing since has equaled it. That evening proved that an idea could be made to work. Yeah, and I yeah. I can only imagine the the type of controlled chaos that was happening on there. So if, if you've ever seen like a, a good, and I'm sure some people out there have in special features and stuff, it, you don't see it that often, but when Foley artists are like going crazy, it, it's almost like a percussionist where your hands are just constantly moving because you're, you're going to create the next sound or yeah, it, almost like uh, like Dick Van Dyke being a one man band. And Mary Poppins having the cymbals in his knees mm-hmm. and the big bass drum and cymbals and it's kind of kind of like that. So granted they they had a nice team working with them at least, but uh it's it's one of those moments I, I wish cameras could have been rolling on it and we we could have it preserved what it was like when they I were know. doing this. I know, I know, because I'm imagining all this in my head, and I, I know it's not doing it justice. No, not at all. <laughs> or it's just, mine is completely cartoonish in how it's yeah. all happening, but that's my brain. When you, when you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, Walt, there's a clip that had once been on um, Wonderful World of Color where Walt describes how they made the three little pigs, how they came up with the song and all that. So Walt tells his version of that story and then they do recreate it and how they came up with it and how they came up with the song with um, you know some of the nine yeah. old men in there and they have that clip at the Walt Disney Family Museum so even though that's all completely staged still just seeing them do that um, where they're supposedly coming up with the song and um, putting the musical effects to it even that was still 
it was still wild wrestling stage but that doesn't change Mm -hmm. how impressive it is as athletes for them yeah you know it it, it's just an art form yeah and now walt ub and wilford jackson came up with a rough musical score that could accompany the film and align sound with action now jackson's mother was a music teacher so he understood rudimentary musical notation and how to use a metronome to keep time so it was wilfred jackson who developed the first crude bar sheet in animation and although it was crude the bar sheet enabled the orchestra to time and synchronize the soundtrack to the film so today's dope sheets are derived from wilfred jackson's innovation yeah, so. I was. I can't remember where it was, and I don't remember if it was Disney or something, something else entirely. But there was a mm-hmm. great special feature I watched it probably in the past year that actually did focus around this and, and showed um, how how the, an orchestra would score around. Uh, around with this so if i ever figure it out i'll have to i'll have to post a link to it because it's it's absolutely brilliant so it had to be i mean it's mostly used in animation so Mm -hmm. it's it's just figuring out which movie i watched it in (laughs) you have to let us know yes i will Now, New York City was still the technological and financial center of the film industry at this time. So Walt traveled there by train in August 1928 to record the soundtrack and find a distributor for Steamboat Willie. Now, Walt stopped over in Kansas City to ask his old friend Carl Stalling to compose scores for Plain Crazy and Galloping Gaucho. Walt and Rye arrived in New York just a little after Labor Day and checked into the Hotel Knickerbocker on West 45th Street and Broadway. Little did he know he would be staying for two and a half months. Walt learned that RCA and Movie Tone had a monopoly on the sound on film systems. But Patrick Powers, whom Walt had been in correspondence with, had bribed company engineers into providing him with technical information. So with just a few modifications, Powers had created a very similar system he called Cinephone. Now, Powers had been partners with Carl Lamell of Universal Pictures until Lamell discovered Powers was cheating him financially. So Powers needed a high-profile project to legitimize his bootleg system, and Walt came along at just the right time. And Powers' charisma and claims he knew all of the important people in the film industry convinced Walt that Powers was the right person to give this cartoon the personal attention it needed. So Walt entered into a 10-year agreement with Powers. Powers agreed to distribute the films, to promote the idea generally, and to lend money to Walt to finance the making of the pictures. Now, Pat Powers arranged for a recording session under the direction of Carl Eduarde. The first recording session took place on September 15, 1928, with a 17-piece orchestra, although Walt later said it was 30, and three trap drummers and effects men. The musicians received $7 an hour, the effects men $10 an hour, and Eduarde $20 an hour. That first session was a disaster. The musicians were distracted by the film being projected on the wall. 
the bass player's low notes kept blowing out a bulb in the recording mechanism. And in those days, everything had to be recorded in one continuous take with no stopping, editing, or layering. So one take ruined everything. And when someone coughed near a microphone and blew out another bulb, well, it turned out it was Walt who had coughed after speaking a line for the parrot. (laughs) Well... Walt tried to hide his disappointment over this very expensive failure. Eduardo had ignored Walt's system of synchronization, uh, synchronizing the film to music, and he said he could match the film to the action by watching the screen. But like I said, the, the, the orchestra found it distracting, but the cartoon also moved too fast for the musicians to follow. Yeah, I have to imagine, even even in this day and age to do something like that. I mean, you you have to be very very talented when it's when it's so fast-paced and mm-hmm. uh, on top of the fact that you're rehearsing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Back in California, Roy was desperately trying to find the funds for a second recording session. To finance a second recording session, Walt gave Roy permission to sell his beloved car, a Moon Roadster. The next recording session saw a smaller orchestra and two less sound effects men. Walt performed their functions and supplied Mickey and Minnie's voices along with the voice of the parrot. Ub had made another print of the film with bouncing lines that indicated where the beat should strike, and it was projected onto Eduardo's sheet music, and this recording went perfectly. So now that Steamboat Willie was finished, Walt needed to sell the film. Powers arranged special showings of the film all over the city. Although the bookers enjoyed it, no one bought it. And Walt was confident, though, that Steamboat Willie was a winner and couldn't understand why companies weren't lining up to sign a contract for a Mickey Mouse cartoon series. It was Harry Reichenbach, a flamboyant and successful press agent who was now handling films for Universal Pictures through its Manhattan outlet at the Colony Theater, who explained it to Walt. He spoke with Walt after the sh- a showing and said Walt needed a good track record to entice distributors to take Steamboat Willie. Reichenbach told Walt, those guys don't know what's good until the public tells them. So Walt was concerned that a short run in New York might discourage potential distributors if a New York premiere had already occurred. Reichenbach convinced Walt that if the public and critics had a chance to see the film, distributors would follow. So Steamboat Willie was booked in the Colony Theater for a two-week run beginning November 18, 1978. Um, I found discrepancies in how much. Uh, uh, In some resources, I saw it was $250 a week. In others, $500 a week. Hmm. Whatever it was, it provided Walton Roy with much-needed income to pay salaries and other expenses. Mm-hmm. So Steamboat Willie debuted on Sunday afternoon, November 18, 1928, at Manhattan's Colony Theater on 53rd Street and Broadway. And this date is, of course, now considered Mickey's birthday. Yeah, and it really is... It's so funny to think that even back then in that day, uh, it's 
it is so true that audiences are the ones who actually decide what's good and what's bad whenever it, whenever it comes specifically to these like big franchises and obviously Mickey spawned a franchise and a generation and is now a corporate icon but uh, we look at we look at the movies that are around today and it's it's ends up audiences being the ones who are able to to pay money to go and see it and and voice their opinion with their hard-earned dollars and that translates into what's good even though uh, a lot of the the movies out there that make massive amounts of money are not relatively speaking good when you compare it to something that's more artistic in a sense but yeah it's i guess some ideals just never die whether it's 1928 or 2018 (laughs) yeah that's true yeah yep yeah i know when you think about you know critics will adore a film and it'll fail and another and then some critics hate it and the public embraces it yeah and it becomes a blockbuster yeah you just never know Uh, mama mia (laughs) (laughs) kidding i've not seen it um i saw the first one not the latest um Anyway, uh, accompanying Steamboat Willie were some live stage acts and the film Gang War. Uh, The music for Gang War was composed by Alfred Sherman, father of future Disney songwriters Richard and Robert Sherman. So there's another little trivia question there for you. Um, Gang War uh, and the live stage acts had little impact on the audience and critics. Everyone was talking about Steamboat Willie. It was a huge hit. Although technically not the very first sound cartoon, it was the first one to successfully integrate music, voice, and sound effects with a likable character and story. Now, when Mickey first talked, it seemed to audiences a miracle that a cartoon character could appear to come to life Combined with the cleverly orchestrated music underscoring the clear voices and special effects, audiences and critics loved it. The trade journals were equally enthusiastic. The Weekly Review wrote, It kept audiences laughing and chuckling from the moment the lead titles came on the screen and left them applauding. Walt stood in the rear of the theater for each showing and listened to the audience's laughter at the antics of Mickey Mouse. After its two-week run at the Colony Theater, Steamboat Willie moved to the Roxy Theater, and Walt was soon flooded with offers. But every distributor insisted Walt surrender the copyright and control of Mickey Mouse. And after his experience with Oswald, Walt would not let this happen again. Yeah, and it's just... uh, I mean, it. He obviously couldn't do it for financial reasons, but it. It is amazing how all of our lives would be changed if, if Walt would have gave up that copyright mm-hmm. to Mickey Mouse. It, it, he would probably be a blip on all of history at this point, popular at that time, but then eventually just disappeared into nothingness. I mean, it still shocks me to this day that. That there is such a passion for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, because there there really shouldn't be with the way he was handled in in his lifetime. So I, we 
we really have to thank Walt very, very, very much for for being smart in terms oh, of yeah. Steamboat Willie uh, because he, I mean, he also did make a, a perfect cartoon when it came to Steamboat Willie. You watch it to this day, and the timing is still there. The gags are hilarious. It just works so well. It It, it is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the animation is so fluid, even with today's standards. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's they did such a remarkable job with that. I, but yeah, it was interesting because, you know, Universal Pictures made the best offer to Walt. So when Walt went in for the meeting, it was, Charles Mintz was their representative. <laughs> and so, you know, took, that took Walt a little by surprise. But he, you know, Walt, it was, you know, what's in the past is in the past. And he was going to listen to them. It was a very generous offer. But Universal wanted everything, just like they did with Oswald. And Walt, Walt left their offer on the table, oh, nice. shook hands with Charles Mintz and left. And speaking just like we did before, it's so funny to see 1928 and 2018 still, uh, still in the same place with Universal wanting things, Disney wanting to keep things. And mm-hmm. it's just... It's just so funny how 90 years apart and the same storylines are still being told in a sense. I, I mean, that one yeah. is a little bit more different, but uh, it's they're still two, two very powerful studios. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, now, Pat Powers, who needed Disney as much as Disney needed Powers, was the only one who agreed to allow Walt to remain independent and to retain ownership of Mickey Mouse and the cartoons. So taking 10% of the gross, plus a 10-year exclusive contract with Disney to use the Cinephone system for $26,000, Powers agreed to handle all expenses involved in selling the cartoons. Finally, Walt could leave New York and head home in triumph to Lillian. He had filled his evenings in his lonely hotel room over the past months, writing her letters about how much he missed her and how he was homesick. Walt returned home with a new contract and $2,500 in cash, more money than he had ever seen in his life. Roy was less enthusiastic about the contract with Powers. For the first time in their partnership, The brothers had a heated argument. Shaking the contract in Walt's face, Roy shouted, Did you read this? Do you know what you promised? He read the provision for Disney to pay $26,000 to use the Cinephone equipment. What the hell, replied Walt. I needed the equipment. Yeah, and it's (laughs) when you put that into context with now... When you think about the fact that you can get a, a very nice car for $26,000. So just to, to think about what that meant in terms of money back in the late 20s. It's, I, I get Roy entirely <laughs> in this situation. That's, that is flat out insane. I know. So Powers shipped the Cinephone equipment to the Hyperion studio and Walt began working on more Mickey Mouse cartoons. To quickly follow up on the success of Steamboat Willie, soundtracks by Carl Stalling were added to Plain Crazy and Galloping Gaucho, and work continued on the fourth cartoon, The Barn Dance. Uh, 
Walt had recruited cartoonists when in New York, and Ben Sharpstein, Bert Gillette, Jack King, and Norm Ferguson soon joined the staff. But the powerhouse of the animation team was still Ub Iwerks, who continued to create a staggering number of drawings each day. According to Roy Disney's ledger book, Steamboat Willie cost $4,986.69, which included the production costs and prints. In a letter to Roy and Ub in late September 1928, Walt hoped the success of Mickey Mouse may mean the beginning of a big organization out of our little dump. On October 20th, he wrote to Lillian, I really think our big chance is here. At the beginning of 1928, Walt Disney and his studio were on the verge of losing everything. Now, at the end of 1928, a little mouse was about to lead Walt and Roy into a new era. In our next installment of Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia, we'll take a look at the Mickey mania that swept the nation in the late 20s and 30s. Yeah, so you'll just have to wait for the other half of it. So <laughs> I know we really teased it there getting to to Fantasia, but it's something sometimes the the best things in life are worth waiting for. Yeah. Well, there there was a lot to getting to Steamboat Willie. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. uh, obviously, there was a, uh, a jump into color and a change in personality. And then, obviously, once you get mm-hmm. to... Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot there. But, but just, <laughs> we're going to see the, the birth of the Disney marketing machine. And that's going to be... I think that's going to be... A, you're all going to find that a very interesting story. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, it, I, I love hearing more and more about Disney merchandising, especially at that time period. Uh, you know, it's you know about the basic thing like Mickey watches and the notepad, and after trivia, of course, learning about the the stupid little the hand car. <laughs> that, I I swear the Walt Disney Family Museum was listening. Because they posted a photo of that hand car. I know. <laughs> and I, I'm sure everyone saw it that follows us on Twitter. You saw me retweet it because I got so angry at it. <laughs> it's like, why? I mean, granted, we have to record these history segments in advance. It's it's not something we can do. We can do after the fact. But then to see it like right there just taunting me and that's not the first time that this has happened where something in our in our history quizzes has then popped up after the fact and it's just sitting there saying like okay you you got this wrong in the quiz and now now you have to be reminded of it again but mm-hmm. yeah and when we were doing that particular question i i knew it was in the museum and i was picturing it in the display in my head as we were talking about it. That's too so, funny. Because there's a whole wall of Mickey merchandise in one in the in the Mickey gallery. And, yeah, I can't <laughs> I can't wait to talk about all that in the next time we pick this up. But yeah, this is, I mean these first three cartoons. I know I know there wasn't a lot that went into Galloping Gaucho, but it's uh, I, I mean, the the key takeaways from this time period really, really was playing crazy, but more importantly, Steamboat Willie. And mm-hmm. it's, 
I, I know we we've mentioned it how just how important it was, but it it really 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 it just it was it was one of those perfect moments where everything just aligned at the the perfect time the right character the right amount of work that was put into it uh the, the fact that it came at the dawning of sound being placed into films and and then just showing it to the right audiences that's that plays a huge key into it too. I think I personally feel like anyone who would have saw Mickey Mouse back then would have adored him. But it, you know, if it played to the wrong audience for some reason and completely flopped, it mm-hmm. also might have never, might have never made it through the thirties, let alone through the twenties. So it's just yeah. It, well, especially when you think that this is a year before the stock market crash and the Great Depression. And we'll talk about that and how it affected Mickey Mouse. And, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's remarkable, the timing, because um, it was almost perfect timing. If it had come maybe a year or two later, uh, things could have been different, or maybe even a year or two earlier. So Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it was just the stars aligned for Walt mm-hmm. in this situation and we are all still still thankful for it to this day because it, yeah. it brings us so much joy so yeah uh, perfect perfect timing all around thanks Walt mm-hmm. yeah and Ub and Ub yes he's <laughs> and Roy yeah well, especially yeah. Ub doing the for yeah. playing crazy doing the 8,000 drawings over <laughs> over the course of three weeks. So I did the rough calculations on it while you were uh, continuing on. And I was like, that's three. If you worked seven days a week for those three weeks, that's 300 drawings a day. And and he did not like to be interfered with because sometimes what would happen is when, you know, when they were, when he was working on like Galloping Gaucho and, and, uh, and actually post Steamboat Willie, uh, right after that, Walt would frequently come back to the studio after dinner and Lily and he, to do uh, you know work on business and and also just to sort of see what was going on and and Lillian would come also and Lillian would end up falling asleep on on a couch in Walt's office and but um, Ub would have like the the musical score next to his drawings and all of that and then um, oh there there were there were these sheets that also had to be created Mm -hmm. um, for the score and Ub would do those as well and Walt would sometimes decide to do them himself and he wouldn't get he would change the timing and that would tick off that was that that annoyed up and he got really angry because he felt what was interfering with his process and his creativity and they had words and that's when walt backed off and just let up do it (laughs) i i can understand that it's Mm -hmm. it's those aren't simple changes (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh it's just God bless Ub for being able to stand up to Walt in situations mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, well, now normally we would have our this week in Disney history contest, but I have been traveling on business this week and unable to record those segments. So we'll bring that segment back along with a new listener to challenge Craig in a couple of weeks. And uh, I, I just like to ask our listeners if they'd send out some positive thoughts, prayers, and pixie dust towards Carol. She has um, been in the hospital the last couple of weeks, uh, recovering from a fairly serious infection. So if you could uh, keep her in your thoughts and prayers, um, both of us would greatly appreciate it. Um, So uh, because it certainly helped the last time she was in the hospital. Every single time our, our, everyone who listens to us uh, contributes with their positive thoughts. Uh, It just, it always makes an impact. I know it has in the past for you and Carol. I know it's it's helped for me. I've seen it help for Pete, Rhino, everyone. It's mm-hmm. you know that's that's one of the the greatest things about doing this is I, I know we make all of you happy, but you don't you don't realize how much uh, your your support to us also helps in a lot of times of need. So it's it's always nice that's... to to think about it and remind it and say thank you for for that. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt. And some of the books you might um, enjoy that I used include Mickey Mouse, Emblem of the American Spirit by Gary Apgar. The Book of Mouse, A Celebration of Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse by Jim Corcus. Mickey Mouse, The Evolution, The Legend, The Phenomenon by Robert Heidi and John Gilman with Monique Peterson and Patrick White. Walt Disney, An American Original by Bob Thomas. Mickey Mouse, 50 Happy Years, edited by David Bain and Bruce Harris. The Mickey Mouse Treasures by Robert Tyman. So... So that that's it for this week. So, Craig, yes. where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Disney World Edition podcast, Walt Disney World Edition, that is, uh, on Thursdays on the Universal Edition podcast, on Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World uh, random days of the week on the Diz Daily Fix. And then, as always, you can find me any day of the week trying to be social on Twitter and Instagram. Both of those you can follow me at Teleclaster. Michael, what about you? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And of course, you can always connect with me and Craig on our official Connecting with Walt Twitter page at ConnectWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man. Walt Disney and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>